to even think. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to continue the series that we began several weeks back on biblical prosperity. And we have adopted a text scripture in Psalm chapter 35, verse 27. It says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, Let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, folks, notice the connection between prosperity and righteousness. We know that the righteousness of God was achieved for us by the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in Isaiah 53, it tells us about that sacrifice and what Jesus paid the price in his own blood for. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So he paid the price for sin, original sin and your individual sins, and he paid the price for physical healing for our bodies. But there where it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him, that word peace, that Hebrew word that's translated peace, is the word shalom. And it means well-being in every area. It's the same word used right here in Psalm 35, 27, translated prosperity. Now, I know that biblical prosperity or the idea of prosperity is foreign to a lot of, of church members, people in the, that make up the modern-day church. I know there's a lot of thought in the body of Christ that prosperity is not something that God wants for us. But folks, if God didn't want it for us, why did Jesus pay a price for it? Now I want you to look back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation. And then in chapter 2, it kind of summarizes it again. Let's start reading in verse 10. It says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and there is bdellium in the onyx stone. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. In the, in the first chapter of Genesis, the story of creation, tells about how God created everything that he made in the first six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Seven times in the Genesis chapter 1, the word good is used. When God surveys what he has made on that particular day, it says over and over again, he looked at it and saw that it was good. Finally, on the sixth day, after he made man and put him in the Garden of Eden, with greater provision than he could ever use, there were more trees on the earth than he could ever sit under the shade of. There was more grass in the earth than he could ever walk barefoot through. There was more water than he could ever drink and more food than he could ever eat. God puts man in the middle of that environment and he said that it's very good or in other words, it was perfect. And then just 
13 scriptures later, 12 scriptures later, it tells us that the next thing God calls, is, calls good is gold. Now, folks, when God made the earth, when he made the gold of this particular place that he identifies, there was no such thing as money. There was no such thing, no medium of exchange whatsoever. Now, by the time God speaks these things to Moses and gives Moses the account in uh, the creation account in Genesis, we certainly understand that money was being used as a medium of exchange. But it's, it has to resonate with us. It has to bring us to some understanding that God would call gold, which is the ultimate in representation of money and wealth, that God calls that good. Now, I know a lot of the church, modern-day church, calls it bad, and says that it's not something that we should attain or expect or something that God doesn't want for us. But God calls it good. God calls it good. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We want to look again at some scriptures that we've looked at several times. Because I want these things to sink in. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Moses is giving his farewell address to the children of Israel. He's led them out of the bondage of Egypt through the Red Sea, the great miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And he's come to the place where he's going off of the scene. The children of Israel are at the edge of the promised land, same place they were 40 years before when their fathers rejected God's plan, operated in unbelief, and failed to receive the fullness of what God had for them. But now 40 years later, Moses is stepping aside. Joshua will be the leader that takes his place. And these things, primarily the, the book of Deuteronomy, not quite the whole thing, but most of it, is Moses encouraging the people and warning them about staying in faith and operating with God and with his help so that they take possession of the promised land that they missed out on for 40 years, the last 40 years. Verse 2, and thou shalt remember all these all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not. Neither did your fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Now, folks, Please notice the connection between the promises of blessings and the abundance that God has planned for them and the keeping of his word. It's all contingent on the word and is only contingent on the word. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. The word chasten doesn't mean punish. It means instruct. 
Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Notice the promised land is something God considers to be good. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. Now here it's describing a land that's perfect just like the Garden of Eden was. It's describing a land of abundance, of fullness, of anything and everything that they shall need. Now folks, please notice that even though sin and the bondage of sin and death, spiritual death, is operating against mankind through Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden, God's attitude toward the Garden of Eden was the same as his attitude toward the promised land. God hadn't changed. And the land that he provided for them was just as abundant, contained just as much blessing as the Garden of Eden did for Adam and Eve. It would have to be that way. God's will doesn't change because God doesn't change. So the same intent and purpose he had for mankind in the Garden of Eden, he still has for mankind today. The same provision that he made in the Garden of Eden, he makes today. Because he never changes. Verse 10, when thou hast eaten and are full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full, and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thou thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions, and drought, where there was no water, and who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee, to do thee good at thy latter end. Please notice that verse of Scripture. A lot of people have the idea that God is in the humbling business. But actually, the Bible tells us to humble ourselves. The Bible tells us to humble ourselves and God will exalt us. So here where he's talking about God humbling the people, the children of Israel, it simply means that he's proving themselves in their eyes. He's showing himself to be faithful. He's showing himself to be the great miracle worker. Where there's no water, he brings forth water out of a rock. Where there's no food, he creates food called manna. And we still haven't figured out what that is. Where it looked like from a physical circumstance in those 40 years in the wilderness where there is no way for provision to be made, God makes provision. When it seems to be impossible, God does what is necessary to make a way. Now these verses of Scripture don't 
refer to it, but you remember the, the historical account given to us in the Old Testament that they got tired of manna and so they asked for flesh, meat. And God brought quail into the camp on several occasions in such abundance and such a, to such a degree that people got sick of eating it. Some people you just can't make happy. But these are all things that God is proving himself in their eyes for the purpose of doing them good at the latter end, for the purpose of increasing and enhancing their lives so that they can walk in God's fullness. Nobody likes the wilderness experience, folks. Nobody looks forward to it. Nobody enjoys it while it's taking place. But God's always faithful there. And that is the life lesson to learn. God is faithful no matter what. We can't always control our circumstances, but we can always count on God to come through no matter what they are. So again, back to the scriptures. He's saying, don't forget God. Don't come to the place, verse 17, where you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do all at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. It's all contingent on the word. Now turn with me to chapter 11. Moses is still speaking to the children of Israel. Not the same speech, but the same truth. Therefore shalt thou love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and unto all his land, and what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses, unto their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them until this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came into this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how the Lord opened up her mouth and swallowed them up in their households and their tents and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs, but the land whether you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys 
and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in the fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Notice it comes down to obeying God's word again. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, Speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house, and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, folks, that's the same condition as the garden of eden was before the fall of man and god's plan hadn't changed just because man sinned he still wants us to experience days of heaven on the earth now folks what are days in heaven like well we don't have all the information but we know that there's no lack we know there's nothing to make us cry or make us sad there's nothing to hurt or harm mankind in any way whatsoever. I'm pretty sure not a lot, a big portion of our day will be taken up with wondering and worrying about what's coming next. Those are days of heaven upon the earth that God still wants us to have. That means it's not God's will for any evil thing, any hard thing, any difficult thing, any sinful thing to come against us, to be a part of our lives or to hinder us from anything that he's provided. There's not one evil thing that's ever God's will. God doesn't tempt man with evil. Now he puts us to the test, and this is the test. The test is whether or not we'll obey his word and walk in his commandments, no matter what circumstances we're in, no matter what situation we're in the midst of. That's God's test. And that's the only test that he gives us. It all comes down to the word. For if you shall diligently keep these commandments, keep all these commandments which I command you, to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to cleave unto him, then will the Lord drive out these nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Now, folks, this is where they messed up 40 years earlier. This is where the children of Israel refused to go in and take the promised land and instead lifted up their voices and said, we would be better off to die in the wilderness. 
which they did. But here he's saying it doesn't matter that the nations are stronger than you. See, I think a lot of times people use these principles or see these things in the Bible. And they think that because God's promised to be with us, that he's automatically going to make us stronger than anything we see or anything that we face. But that's not the promise of God. The promise of God is it doesn't matter how strong your enemies are. It doesn't matter what you're faced with because God's bigger than them. See, Christians have a tendency to not want to face anything that's stronger than them. But God's instruction is, look at how much bigger he is than the problem. It doesn't matter if the problem's bigger than you. The important thing is, no problem can ever be bigger than him. And he's with us. Every place where on the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. There shall no man be able to stand before you. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said unto you. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. Here's the test. Here's the way that God proves us. And it's very simple. It's simply a question of whether or not we're going to stay with the word, act in obedience to the word, believe what God said is true, or give up because of how we see ourselves. Finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field, Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle, and the fruit of thy ground in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee the, his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto the land, thy land in his season. 
and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after any other gods to serve them. Now, folks, we certainly understand that money and, and goods and resources are not the most important things in life. The Bible tells us, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, for an example. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. John wrote to the church in 3 John, verse 2. Beloved, I wish or I pray above all things that thou mayest prosper in health, even as your soul prospers. So nobody is claiming that money should be the thing that we pursue or value more highly than anything else. And in fact, when we looked at the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we saw that each one of them came to the place. They had to grow into it. They had to learn. But each one came to the place where their relationship with God was more important than the wealth that they owned or that they, the possessions that they had. But if God doesn't want us to prosper, if God doesn't want us to be a success and to have more than we need, if he doesn't want us to live a life that's with our nose to the grindstone, so to speak, but instead to enjoy life, partly because of the abundance that he's provided for us and promises us, then why are there so many scriptures in the Bible about it? It's kind of like Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. If God didn't want you to succeed and be prosperous, why did he tell you how to do it? Isn't there an implied will of God that the reason he would give us instruction and direction is because he wants us to reap the advantage and the results? Now, the children of Israel, when Moses led them out of Egypt, you remember the ten plagues, or actually there were nine plagues in the death of the firstborn. But through these nine plagues, the children of Israel were still held captive. Pharaoh would not let the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, leave. But upon the death of the firstborn, God gave Moses some specific instruction. He told them, here's the last thing. And this tenth act of, and display of God's power will be the thing that Pharaoh causes Pharaoh to relent and release the people. And so the, the Passover was instituted. God told about the Passover. He told about putting the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the side posts of the door. He instructed them that they were supposed to prepare it in a specific way and be ready to eat it in a hurry because they're going to have to leave Egypt quickly. 
But of all the things and all the things they made haste to do, God told them very specifically, make time to capture the wealth of Egypt. Go to your neighbors. King James says borrow. It really doesn't mean to borrow. It means to demand wages. Now, folks, if God wasn't interested in money, if God wasn't interested in our well-being and our resources, why in the world would he use the example of salvation, which is exactly what the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea identified? It was the passing over from death to life. It's a type of salvation. Now, we see in that type of salvation that there was a sacrifice made for the sins of Israel, and there was a sacrifice made that brought physical healing to the children of Israel. So why does the church, why does the modern-day church ignore what God told them about spoiling the Egyptians? Was that not just as important to God as the other things? The Bible says in Psalm 105, he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. He told them to eat the lamb that was roasted in the fire for the strength of their journey. Well, what was the strength of their journey? It was physical healing for the people. And that wasn't the only time that Passover brought physical healing to the children of Israel. In Hezekiah's day, it says when he reinstituted the Passover because it had been forgotten for years and years. It says that they took, partook of the Passover, not even in, uh, according to the exact detail that they were instructed. The time of year that the Passover was supposed to happen on had already passed. So Hezekiah had it at the wrong time of the year. The priests hadn't been prepared. They didn't prepare themselves in the way that God had originally instructed. But still, God healed the people. And so in this most momentous occasion, the type or the example that we were to look back on and recognize the parallels to our deliverance from sin through the precious blood of Jesus, God made time for the people of Israel to gain the spoils of Egypt. Don't tell me that money's not important to God. Because if it wasn't important to God, he wouldn't have had the people go and demand wages from the Egyptians. And the Bible says that the, the people of Egypt gave them more than they asked for. They wanted these people to just get out of there. They were a lot smarter than Pharaoh. They realized that these people were the source of all the trouble. So let's get them out. Now, folks, why did God give them the resources of Egypt? It's not like they're going to be passing a Costco every three or four days. There's nowhere to spend the money. The Bible tells us that they used it in part to build the tabernacle of the wilderness. The people were willing to give to such a degree that Moses had to finally say, stop giving. We've got too much. So that has to mean that the people had more than just what they gave to build the tabernacle. Then it had to be God's will for it to be so. 
Why are there examples in the Bible if God doesn't want to provide for us? Why are there examples in the Bible that when people put the things of God first in their lives, that he provided for them in a miraculous way? We see God providing for Elijah in the wilderness in some supernatural ways. We know that Elijah had committed himself to the things of God and to God's plan for his life because he was a prophet in the land of Israel for a time. God commanded the ravens to bring him bread and flesh morning and evening by a certain place where there was a little trickle of water, a brook of water. Remember Elijah had gone to King Ahab and our introduction into Elijah's life is him declaring to the king that it's not going to rain until he says so and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Think about that folks. It didn't rain for three and a half years. What kind of drought, what kind of famine would that create? Well, the Bible says the brook of water dried up. But God didn't leave Elijah. He told him to go to the city of Zarephath. He said, you'll find a widow woman there that will sustain you through this time. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm probably thinking widow woman. Everything her husband had is left to her. Finally, we can take some comfort here. But he gets to Zarephath and finds a woman gathering two sticks for a fire. Now, folks, I don't know what kind of fire you can make with two sticks, but you wouldn't expect it to be a big one. God points her out and says to Elijah, she's the one. Ask her to make you a cake. So Elijah does. Said, woman, make me something to eat. And she says, I don't have anything to eat. There's only a handful of meal and a little, few drops of oil. I'm going to make this fire out of these two sticks, and then we're going to die. That's quite a daytime or checklist. <laughs> Gather two sticks, make fire, make a little cake, die. Well, you remember what happened. Elijah said, well, do everything that you were planning to do, but feed me first. <laughs> and the meal didn't run out, neither did the oil. Now, the Bible tells us that there was a woman that came to Elisha. Her husband had been one of the sons of the prophets. And he didn't leave her anything except debt when he died. So Elisha asked her, what do you have? Her sons are about to go into servitude. He asked her, what do you have? She said, I've just got a little bottle of oil. So Elisha says, by the word of the Lord, he says, go borrow as many jars and jugs and containers as you can. And when you get all you can get your hands on, shut the door where it's just you and your sons 
and pour the oil from the bottle into the containers. And the oil didn't run out until they had filled every container. Now, not only did her husband put the things of God first place in their lives together, but she obeyed what the prophet told her to do too. And the result was wealth in an abundant amount to not only pay her sons out of debt, but also to live on for the rest of her life. Now, if God did that for a widow woman that was willing to put the word of God first place in her life, how can we possibly think that he would change for us or change toward us? God never changes. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed the 5,000, he fed people that had put the word of God first place in their lives for a span of three days. They had followed Jesus out into the wilderness, and after three days, there was nothing left to eat. Nobody brought a three-day supply. But God multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed the 5,000. And the pattern continues throughout all of Scripture. The people that put the things of God first place in their lives, the people that obey what God said do, those are the ones that receive the abundance. When Jesus came on the scene, he was by the Sea of Galilee, and there was a crowd that was gathered around him. So he asked Peter if he could use his boat. Peter said that he could. And so they pushed out a little bit from the shore. And Jesus sat down in the boat and taught the people who were there on the shoreline. Now after that was done, because Peter had offered the Lord the boat that he asked for, he in just a very minor and small way put the things of God first before something else. Jesus then told him to launch out and cast his net into the waters for a catch of fish. Peter argued with him a little bit. He knew that Jesus was not a fisherman. Peter and James and John were. So he said, there's all kinds of reasons why this won't work. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And he did. And he got a miracle catch of fish that was greater and stronger and bigger than anything he'd ever experienced in his life. So much so that the net started to break. He put things, first things first. He put what Jesus said above everything else. He had a lot of reasons why it shouldn't have worked. But when you obey the word of God, things work. Even the rich young ruler follows, follows this pattern. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he named several of them. And the rich young ruler said, all these things I have observed from my youth up. Folks, why do you think he's rich? One reason that he identifies that has to have something to do with his wealth 
is that he's been a doer of the word and a keeper of the commandments all of his life. Now, that may not have been the only thing that contributed to his wealth, but that had to help. And Jesus teaches his disciples a great lesson from that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Let's look at that one. Mark chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go your way and sell whatsoever you have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Folks, it seems to me that Jesus is disappointed by this guy's reaction. And I think there's something significant when it says Jesus beheld him and loved him. He's offering him a place close to him among the disciples. The one thing that he's missing is treasure in heaven. Jesus said so. He said, give what you have to the poor. Sell things and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. There's only one way to get treasure in heaven and that's by giving. Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Jesus also said, you can't serve God and mammon, which represents money. But when Jesus says to his disciples, and again, I I read sadness into his statement. When Jesus said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Notice verse 24. It says, and the disciples were astonished at his words. Why are they astonished? Because they know that wealth is a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his seed. They know that as far as God's concerned, as far as God's will is concerned, all of the children of Israel should be wealthy. So when Jesus says that it's tough for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, they're astonished. They're blown away. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Notice verse 26. This doesn't comfort them at all. Verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Now get this. The disciples seem to think that wealth is a prerequisite to salvation. Now they don't understand anything about the new birth. They don't understand about life versus eternal life versus spiritual death. They don't know anything about those things yet. But it is so ingrained in them that the blessing of Abraham includes material resources that in their minds they're thinking according to what Jesus is saying we've got to forego wealth to enter into the salvation that he's offering. But that couldn't be right. Because if that was the case, then why would God have made the power to get wealth a part of the covenant blessing of Abraham? So they're bewildered all the way around on this. So they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Jesus tells Peter, here's the blessing for putting the things of God first. Folks, God doesn't have a problem with money. He doesn't have a problem with you having money. He has no problem whatsoever with wealth. In fact, the Bible instructs us that these are things that God includes as a part of being a good person or a good man. Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, therefore, that would have to mean, therefore, God considers enough wealth to pass down to your grandchildren to be part of what makes you a good person. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Proverbs 10, 22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. God doesn't have a problem with you and I being rich. But the same warning goes for us as went for the children of Israel. When God begins to increase you, don't forget it was him that did it. Don't start thinking it was you because you're such a financial whiz. But remember, it's the Lord thy God which giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto your forefathers 
even as it is this day. Because God never changes his promise, his covenant promise of blessing is the same now as it was in Abraham's day or Isaac's day or Jacob's day. Jesus paid the price for sin, sickness, and poverty. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice in verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, folks, this is a parallel scripture to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I believe it is. Which says, God made Jesus to be sin for your sakes, who knew no sin, that you through his righteousness, that you through his, well, let me read it. I'm getting mixed up. It says, for he, has, he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, it's saying Jesus paid a substitutionary price for you to be righteous. He paid the price for sin. Now, when did he do this? Well, we know that he did it in connection with the cross. His blood was shed on the cross to bring us into a place of righteousness, right standing with God, a new nature, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And in the same exact way, it says Jesus became poor for your sake, that you through his poverty might be made rich. In other words, the Bible, the same Paul, the same writer, the same one anointed of the Holy Ghost, perhaps the greatest of all the apostles, that would certainly have to be true concerning the revelation he received. The same writer in the same letter says that just as Jesus shed blood for your sins as a substitute so that you could be made righteous, in the same exact way he shed blood and became poor, just like he became sin, he became poor, that you through his poverty, his being made poor, The exchange was made, his blood for sin, to enable us to be made righteous. His blood for poverty, to enable us to be rich. Now, how can you separate those two things when the Bible lays them out together? How can you separate those things? What do we say? Do we say, well, Paul was anointed of the Holy Ghost to tell us about the substitute for righteousness, but somehow or another he missed it when he talked about Jesus being the substitute for poverty? How do you separate these things? One's just as true as another. One is just as real as the other. Now, I'm not trying to encourage anybody to have a wrong attitude toward money and pursue it. 
as their life's goal. But I am telling you that most of us as believers live way below what God has for us. And the only place in the Bible that you can find where God provides instruction for a financial fix is in Malachi chapter 3. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. They're, they were operating under a curse because they had quit acting on the word. So here's their fix. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Now, folks, wherever you are, not room enough to receive, blessing means increase, doesn't it? And that's God explaining his will, his intent for our well-being. There are too many scriptures where the Bible identifies God's willingness to help. Even the tax money that Peter and Jesus owed, God miraculously brought it to them. Why would he do that for others and not do that for us? He said he's no respecter of persons. Which means he has to be willing to do the same for us as he does for anyone else. Even the stories that we read in the Old Testament. That's not hard for him because he never changes. He doesn't have to readjust his will for you. His will for each one of us has already been identified. And he said himself, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. His word will never fail. Now, folks, I don't know what you're supposed to do with this. I know the Lord put this on my heart to teach. But I don't know what you're supposed to do specifically. I don't know why. I don't know all the reasons why. I know some of them, perhaps. But I certainly don't know all the reasons why God wants you to hear these things. Other than he wants you to extend your faith toward things that he has planned for you. I'm just here as the messenger telling you that whatever it is, God's faithful to bring it to pass if we'll act on his word. But the first move is ours. He's already made his move. What are we going to do? For some, I would expect that God's trying to deal with them to begin to tithe. For others, it may be that God is trying to deal with them about gaining treasure in heaven through giving. For others, he may have other works, things outside the church, missions, efforts, whatever. I don't know what you're supposed to do with it, but I know that we can't left the, leave these truths unacted on. I know that's terrible sentence construction, but I got in the middle of it and didn't know how to finish it. <laughs> the word only benefits us to the degree that we put it in practice. So there has to be a way for each one of us to put this in practice in some way or another. And it's going to be up to us to pray and find out what God wants us to do.
I can sincerely tell you that I'm not trying to increase our church offerings. Doesn't mean I don't want them to increase. But I'm not teaching this to try to increase the offerings to the church. One of the reasons I'm teaching this is to increase the tithes to the church. Because that's something God has for all of us. It's his will for each and every one of us. But there's something that you and I both can and should do with these truths. To satisfy what God wants us to do. It's going to be up to us to find out what that is. We want to receive communion this morning. And take hold of. The elements that represent Jesus' sacrifice. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed.
thank God for the blood of Jesus. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do ye in remembrance of me. Father, we recognize that this bread represents Jesus' body. Specifically, the stripes on his back brought us to a place of healing. So we received this bread, and in so doing, we received the healing power of God in our bodies to bring about a healing from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. In Jesus' name, let's receive the bread. Paul went on to say, after the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup, the precious blood of Jesus. We declare that we've been made righteous. We've been, we declare that we have right standing with God the Father. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to pay the price, the awful and awesome price, to bring us into the family of God. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's just lift our hands and thank God for the new birth. Thank him for the fact that we've been redeemed, not just forgiven of our sins, but redeemed from them. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you for making us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We thank you for healing our bodies. We thank you that Jesus took our poverty upon him as well. Open our eyes, Father, to that we should do and who we are because of what Jesus has done. Say it with me I'm redeemed. By the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.